Hey, welcome to Halfway Decent, a halfway decent podcast about art history. I am still Mike. And I'm Sarah. And welcome back. Uh, sorry we missed last week. It was a uh, rough day, rough week in the Schrock household, mm-hmm. sickness and whatnot. But hey, mm-hmm. we made it back. And uh, this week is brought to you by um, the stomach flu and asbestos. <laughs> It's uh oh boy. Anyhow, um, but yeah, we're back here in the Semeta Studios, and uh, this was supposed to come out in February, so we apologize because that is kind of critical, I think, to this mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, why don't you tell our lovely listeners why that would have been important? Yeah, so I'm sure you know that February is Black History Month. Um, so actually, it was Mike had the great idea to feature a black artist on our podcast. Um, but then we got really sick and this podcast didn't come out in February, but we are still going to talk about Jacob Lawrence, who's an African-American artist. That is very cool. I'm excited to learn about somebody I have no point of reference for. Yeah. I was going to ask, like I always do, what do you know about Jacob Lawrence? But I know the answer already. And that is nothing. Correct. So I guess we'll just get started. As opposed to sitting here a little bit longer and... I mean, it's the playful banter that everyone comes to tune in it's so, to our podcast for. <laughs> so playful, so witty. All right, I'm going to start now. Uh, so Jacob Lawrence was born on September 7th in 1917. Uh, so he was growing up in the Great Depression... And he moved to Harlem when he was 13. Okay. So um, that was the tail end of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, So there was sort of this, if you're unfamiliar, um, sort of this burgeoning social awareness, um, especially within the African-American community. Um, They recognized that there was economic hardship, but there was a lot of art poetry and visual art that were coming out of this era Um, and that is what he was growing up in so he was um, his mom was a single parent his parents were separated Um, they had she had three kids and um, she had a job doing domestic work so like cleaning houses etc but she was often on welfare and so while she was working um her kids were enrolled in some after school programs um one of which uh jacob was enrolled in was called the utopia house and it was an after school program um that did arts and crafts activities and it was actually run by charles alston who was a painter at the time who was kind of gaining popularity rising in prominence in the time and so it was um part of the uh, programs that Roosevelt put into effect um, that were part of the, it was called the Public Works of Art program. Um, And it was to assist artists by giving them a weekly salary um, as part of sort of the Depression era. So is the the government's way of trying to keep arts alive right through the depression right exactly um so artists who were part of the program um they would kind of have like this two-month kind of contract so it didn't last for a long time 
Um, but over 3,500 artists earned $32 a week, which right now sounds ridiculous, but that was the same as unskilled laborers were making at the Ford factory. Wow. So it was like a decent yeah. living wage for the time. It gives you a reason to, I mean, because I feel like that is when people kind of drop art is when they have to because they can't they can't subsist that's not the word I'm subsist? looking subsist subsist it's uh it's a long couple of weeks cannot subsist on uh art alone and so they have to drop that and then life and you never get to go back exactly so um the works progress administration was founded as we were saying to relieve general unemployment um and then part of that was the uh wpa's federal art project um, and this is like we were talking about created to um, create jobs in art and writing and in theater um, and it was through this program that funded different community cultural centers and art workshops and like I said Lawrence was growing up um, in this environment at the tail end of the Harlem Renaissance so he benefited from this immensely because he was taking classes all the time with professional artists Um, and so he was able to interact with all kinds of different artists including like Langston Hughes um, Elaine Locke Claude McKay these are you know pretty big names um, as far as the Harlem Renaissance is concerned and he was interacting with this these people learning from them as part of these programs it's it's really cool too because if you think about uh his chance of interacting with those people like outside of the this public works thing they wouldn't probably be out there like teaching classes in an after school program exactly and so because this uh works program he got to meet and interact with some pretty top-notch artists yeah um and uh it was it's definitely he's definitely a product of those classes um i mean who i maybe don't know enough about his life to say otherwise but i'm you know, who knows if he grew up, say, in today in Harlem, if his life would have had that same trajectory. Yeah. And maybe a, not a PSA. I don't know what the word I'm looking for. Shockingly, I can't find words today. Uh, but it is it goes to say how important like the arts programs are. Exactly. Because even, the, you know, outside the benefits of them for educational purposes and what it's been shown to do to kids brains and stuff there's also like you never know who you may be missing out on because they didn't get the opportunity to interact in that stuff so it's cool yeah he also spent uh lots of hours at the new york public library uh doing research on african-american history um and they had a lot of special programs and exhibitions um and he was doing art as as a student but his teachers really didn't encourage his art. Um, I don't know if they just didn't see it as a viable option as a career or um, exactly what what the circumstances were, but he ended up dropping out of school. Hmm. Um, and he also needed to support his family. Like I said, he, his mom was a single mom. And so he held various odd jobs. He had a paper route. He worked for um, a laundry. He worked at a printer's shop. But every evening he was there in the studios working on his art. That is a guy who's got some serious passion. Or a person who has some serious passion and desire to be. Because I have done 
at least one of those things, which is paper delivery. And yeah. that is a nightmare job that yeah. I hated with all of my being. Yeah. Uh, shout out to my brothers who have both, two of my brothers who have also done that. And golly, does that suck. Yeah. So um, he was, like I said, spending all of his evenings um, in the studios in these different workshops. So in 1937, this is when he was about 20, um, he received a two-year scholarship to the American Artist School in New York. And this is where he has his first uh, solo exhibition at the school. At um, age 20, you said? Mm-hmm. You know what? I think the one depressing thing about this podcast is learning about how brilliant people are at the age of 20. Yeah. Because I'm now at 33. I'm like, I got I not brilliant at well, anything. <laughs> well, this is this was actually I mean, the exhibition was held at the school. So it was more more of a showcase probably than necessarily like a gallery opening kind the- of a kind of video thank you for making me feel marginally better about myself yeah um i mean it was him and i think the other students at the school um exhibiting he had uh six pencil drawings i tried i tried really hard to figure out to find those drawings or figure out what they were but that's all i could find was that they were six there were six pencil drawings um and um, like I said, he was reading a lot about um, African-American history, early black leaders um, at the West 135th Street branch of the New York Library. It's now known as the Schoenberg Center for, uh, Center for Research in Black Culture. But at the time, it was just part of the library. Mm. Um, and he spent countless hours there learning. And so he began um, especially to learn about um, this guy, his name was Saint-Toussaint Louverture. Sure. Louverture? I don't know. He, he was French. Uh, I mean, the name you is French. You don't say. Yeah. The name is French, but he was a Haitian slave. Oh, okay. Wow. Who helped free his country from French rule and ended up helping to found the Republic of Haiti, which is one of the first or the first black Western republic. That's really cool i'm it makes sense he has this french name being in that area but yes. the fact yeah. that he was yeah yeah um really so uh they said that lawrence um saw a play that was by w.e.b du bois about haiti and that's kind of where he discovered uh and so he does this series covering this guy's life and uh, it focuses on the mistreatment of native Haitians, uh, and it's the first, as you'll, as we'll talk about, uh, the first series of many throughout his life. And so, I guess um, if you want to look it up, um, <laughs> I don't know if you want me to spell the guy's name. The French guy. Yeah. Uh. No, okay. no, you can't for our audience so they can look it up. Uh, well, I'll do his last. His name, his last name is like Overture, but with an L apostrophe in front. L oh. Overture. So, um, if you're looking at Jacob Lawrence's work, um, it largely doesn't. His style doesn't really change throughout his life. I mean, it gets. I would say the 
the painting itself maybe gets more sophisticated. Um, he, towards the end of his life, incorporates sort of more patterns and maybe some more intricacy into the painting. But the style itself is still pretty much the same. Um, it uh, almost, on, on first glance, you might see it and think it is kind of primitive. But uh, because his, like the figure ground which is, you might guess this, but uh, the objects sort of float. Um, the pieces, you can't quite tell where they are in the space. If you think about like a, the way a little kid draws on a page, um, a lot of times like you're like, oh, well, there's a table that's just kind of floating next to that guy's hip. <laughs> you know, you can't really see where they're grounded i would say it is safe to always uh assume that i don't know <laughs> just always assume the worst that's fair. that's fair um but lawrence's uh the forms are always flat and simplified but on further examination you can tell that um this is a guy who really considered his art very carefully before uh, before making a mark. He would draw it out in pencil first before he painted. You can see he's got, there's uh, studies um, that he's done of like figure drawings that, I mean, he's an amazing artist. I think that's kind of um, something that I always found interesting studying art history is you see people like Jacob Lawrence or like Picasso, like we've talked about. Um, I think growing up, when I saw art like that, I would think like, oh, they must just see the world in this weird way. You know, their eyes just might must see people, you know, like in Picasso's case, you know, you just must see faces with an eye up here and a nose over there. You know, you think it's crazy, but then you can see that they have this background in traditional art that they know what they're doing it's just pushing that style forward or you know whatever the uh the popular or maybe unpopular depending on the artist yeah. at the time yeah it may not be appreciated or recognized till after their death at times right so um he kind of uses a sometimes exaggerated or cartoonish pose um, of the body, but you can look at his paintings and very quickly read what's happening in the painting. Um, it, not that there's not depth to it, but you can very quickly understand the mood and what is being gestured at by the body language um, mm. of the figures. And he, throughout his life, um, his paintings always focus on humans and a human story. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, though. Um, his The faces, um, similar to as we talked about in our Picasso episode, um, a lot of his faces are sort of mask-like. And again, um, just like Picasso, that might reveal some of his exposure to African masks at the Met. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I so, guess growing up in Harlem, you would probably 
have that opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. Between visiting the Met and making things like paper mache masks at the Utopia house. Um, He's had some exposure to those kinds of things. Like I said, he always painted um, or drew his pencil drawings and then painted on top. Um, But something that was I found kind of interesting, he when he was doing these series and we'll talk more about this in the next series that we talk about but um he would lay all of them out after he did the drawings he would lay them all out and um would paint the same color on each one Mm. kind of sequentially yeah Um, i mean i would i think of that in my job as a uh, efficiency thing i wonder if it was that his brain worked in efficiency or if it was um uses of resources or what it was it's i read i read somewhere um that um i guess as a kid he uh would practice i don't know if they meant like by collage or what but um making different patterns and so you think about it that way you're like lay all your yellow ones and then do the pattern of the blue ones next and then the green ones next Mm. or whatever so i don't know if that if that was i never i never got into his reasons for why he did that i bet he's the kind of kid who would eat all of one thing off of his plate before he went <laughs> on to the next one eating all my mashed potatoes yes. then all my peas <laughs> yeah probably um so jacob also used tempera paint now michael this is a pop quiz in Fair. our last episode about van eyck we talked about tempera paint what do you remember about tempera paints this was in contrast to what Van Eyck did, because Van Eyck was using oils. This came, this was what temperas was usually what was, was used, used before, before him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fill for time, Sarah. Okay. I have to listen to a pod. <laughs> uh, it's okay if you don't remember. I don't. Okay, so temper paints um, are made with egg. Oh. Okay. Um, and they're again very very opaque. They dry very quickly. And um, it's hard to blend and layer colors because um, one layer pretty much just blocks out the next. So you can't really build up color the way you can with oil. Yeah, okay. Which is why for Lawrence's style, it makes sense that it kind of looks like that because it's just kind of like pools of color in yeah. a way. Um, so yeah, he mixed his own paints and... Um, tried to work darker to lighter i don't know if that's a universal thing i wonder if that's uh because if, if he's using temper paint mm-hmm. uh it would be i'm assuming easier to cover up something that is nope that wouldn't make sense i was at gonna all. say i would think that's it would backwards. be the other way that but is, i don't know i read that i guess Excellent I don't question. know what the what the reasoning would be for that. I haven't really worked with temper paint except for like, I think in elementary school they gave us temper paint, so I don't know. You went to a cooler elementary school than me. I mean, it wasn't cool. It was like the paint for kids was temper paint. Yeah, we didn't get paint. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. In private school. Uh huh. So after this first series, he went on to do. Uh, biographical series on Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, and then later on he did John Brown. And then in 1940, 
He won the first of three consecutive Rosenwald Foundation fellowships. Um, And this fellowship allowed him to move into his own studio in a loft on 125th Street. And this larger studio space allowed him to create larger, and in his case, longer series of paintings. So a series isn't just like different paintings that all go together. In this situation, you're talking about like laid out back to back, go together kind of thing. I mean, that's how he did it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, because you were saying he'd lay them all out and then do one color at a time. Right. Mm-hmm. I got Okay. Yeah. But that's just what it means. For a series, yeah, that's just what it means is like a bunch of paintings that are sort of one cohesive work, even though they're individual paintings. So like for me at work, I build beams and they're for all one project. So they all have a similar look and feel, but they are all different pieces right they're all going in the same house they are they all have to look similar right look right together right okay so his parents we're going to go back in time a little bit uh his parents were part of the great negro migration so this was after world war one and uh thousands of african-american southerners moved north to find work and better economic conditions and better political social climates right there's still the uh ramifications of the civil war and industrialization of the north and jim crow yeah all that stuff all Mm of that um so this was also part of there was um the ra which is the resettlement administration program um and basically they were sort of paying people to move from rural rural areas into urban centers to work in factories because that's kind of the the workforce was moving in that direction so where did it say where his family is originally from you know i don't remember somewhere in the south but i I don't remember where i exactly i know that the journey from south to north for many uh, african americans was treacherous at times and uh, at some points just downright cruel well a lot of times downright cruel so I'm sure I, I don't know if he came across anything in his past but I'm sure his family's move north was not the smoothest of situations right well and that's the thing like people were moving to come into better conditions but a lot of times they faced things that were just as discriminatory in the north as they were in the south um and it's kind of crazy because we know about it now but at the time the movement was mostly invisible to white america uh because they would say there's a lot of that that still exists today i mean you're not wrong um but the movements were largely undocumented well, the people who are writing the history, it didn't affect as much as, as right. the people who weren't. And, and I think that's and probably news part of and right. everything. And it's Media. probably part of his art is the documentation of his life as well. Just you wait. Oh, boy. So uh, be, with this in mind, that this was his parents' uh, reality, um, he created the what is now known as the Migration Series, Um, At the time, it was initially called The Migration of Negro. And it is this series of vignettes that capture the experience of this movement. 
Um, so this is going to be the main focus um, for our <laughs> for our time with Jacob Lawrence. Um, our time together on yes, this. Yes, exactly. Spoiler, it's a Thursday. Uh, so it is a series of 60 panels. Um, it's tempera, again, on Masonite. And all the panels are the same size. They're uh, 18 by 12 inches, so relatively small. Mm -hmm. um, but they kind of go between vertical and horizontal. They kind of switch back and forth. Interesting. Um, they were initially hung without frames. He kind of painted frames around the edge, uh, so they kind of didn't need them, although a lot of times now you see them kind of zoomed in yeah. away from that frame. He did tons of research, and so each each panel has text that goes along with it, um, oh. captions, and he wrote that accompanying text before he ever created a single image for it. So he essentially kind of like wrote a story, then illustrated that story. Yeah, and um, as you go through it, um, it it's almost, though the subject matter isn't necessarily what you would want to share with kids. It almost reads like a children's illustrated book. Um, it's very interesting. So, Michael, I actually have this book from the library that has uh, the entire series in it. Library, a great free resource. Right. Check out your local library. For sure. So, like I said, there are 60 panels, um, and I would encourage all of our listeners to look up the migration series Basically, if you look up Jacob Lawrence, this is going to be primarily what you find. And if you go to our Instagram account, we will have at least a couple of these <laughs> sure. for the show. Um, but Mike, since they read almost like a kid's book, would you maybe read at least at least some of them? I'll, I'll maybe stop you partway through um, as you just read the captions for them, just so that in case people aren't following along as they're listening they can kind of get an idea of what is being depicted sure uh this is story time with mike i love this can this be a new segment no okay as we are going to learn not only am i bad with words sometimes i'm bad at reading <laughs> so this is going to be a fun adventure for <laughs> I'm everybody very excited. okay uh during the world war there was a great migration north by the southern negroes it's interesting that it's called, he calls it the World War. Mm -hmm. I, back then it would have been, what, the Great War? Back before World War Two. Yeah. Yeah. The World War had caused a great shortage of northern industry, and also citizens of foreign countries were returning home. In every town, Negroes were leaving by the hundreds to go north and enter into the northern industry. The Negro was the largest source of labor to be found after all others had been exhausted. Which is, that sentence alone, kind of heavy. I think about, you think about uh, the South and what was created on the backs of, uh, as Jacob would say, the Negroes. The Negroes were given free passage on railroads, which were paid by the Northern industry. It was an agreement that the people brought north on these railroads were to pay back their passage after they had received jobs. The trains were packed continually with migrants. The Negro, who had been part of the soil for many years, was now going into and living a new life in the urban centers. 
They did not always leave because they were promised work in the North. Many of them left because of Southern conditions, one of them being great floods that ruined the crops, and therefore they were unable to make a living where they were. Another great ravager of the crops was the boll weevil. They were very poor. In many places, because of, of the war, food had doubled in price. The railroad stations were at times so overpacked with people leaving that special guards had to be called in to keep the order. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. So, um, as I don't, well, I, you can definitely tell if you're looking at it, but um, the series continually goes back to these uh, railroad stations um, where there's just usually most of the images for the railroad stations are just like a mass of people. Yeah. It's just there's splashes of black and green and red and blue and yellow. Um, and it's always pushing forward. And it, like I said, it, the, the rail rate, railroad stations, <laughs> rail station, <laughs> words are hard. Well, words, uh, they come throughout the series and it feels like every time it comes up again, um, which, you know, the the stations and the platforms are kind of a symbol of waiting and departure and arrival and anticipation. And it feels like every time the next train station arrives, there's more reasons for them to get on board. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of this really, I mean, it, it's very direct and very simplified, but really impactful as you keep going um it talks about a lot of the struggles of of african americans um it talks about um that lynchings were part of why people left that um people who weren't inclined to leave before if there was a lynching in that town they're much more inclined to leave after that yeah you know there it it's pretty serious and I just think it's really beautiful the way he depicts these images um, in this. Not, I mean, it's they're not cartoons, no, but right. simplified um, and very like to the point um, in these images. Well, I, I would say too, you're talking about the text that went with it. Mm -hmm. It is almost critical because you can look at the the picture itself, but like when you start reading the story through, it is hugely impactful, and there's so much. I think to be gained from learning about him, about how he saw things, based on the text that goes with these these pictures as well. Or, right. Sorry, these artwork, not pictures. Right. Um, no, you just want to. I mean, they just feel like they're illustrations from a kids' book, right? Yeah. As you go through this series, um, you can tell that. Well, you can tell that the way like what we've been talking about the way he used color over the series you can tell that it the same colors are used over and over and over again yeah. um and one thing as you kind of dig into that um that's kind of interesting the same color brown it's kind of like brown brushy like you can see the brush strokes um, is used for like the wooden planked homes and the soil and those like 
representative things in the South. Yeah. Whereas um, they show a lot of the um, urban North and actually even some scenes in the South um, with these like wide open, light blue, promising looking skies. There was definitely, I mean, just reading through that first little bit, you can even get the sense of like the hope that was felt in the North and maybe not always realized, but. Right. Um, Yeah. And that's kind of the three focuses of the piece. Um, It's the momentum of the migration, uh, the both promises and hardships of the North and the poverty and racism in the South that made, Mm -hmm. made people leave. I just love the, Michael, can you flip to the very last page? It's um, yeah, number 60 and what that caption says. The migrants kept coming. And the migrants kept coming. And it's almost poetic uh, in the way that it ends, that it's it kind of alludes to um, the future. It's almost hopeful in a way. It kind of uh, is an ellipses yeah. on the end of it. I don't know. It's just lovely. Yeah. As I was saying earlier, uh, Elaine Locke um, was an artist in, in the time, and he was a friend and mentor to Jacob Lawrence. And he saw this series and showed it to his friend, Edith Halpert, who was an art dealer. And then she showed the series to the editors of Fortune magazine. And they published 26 of the panels uh, in their magazine, which is pretty phenomenal. I mean, like, yeah. you think about how much coverage you can get in a magazine. Yeah, that's, that's especially then great. where I'm sure people are more likely to be reading magazines than today where right. print, print media has fallen out of fashion a bit. Sure. Um, so she also, uh, Edith, had a gallery uh, downtown, and so she also exhibited the series in her gallery the following month and it was at this exhibition that both the museum of modern art or moma um, and the phillips memorial gallery which is today the phillips collection were both interested in buying the series and they kind of had a bidding war (laughs) between them and um Though Lawrence wanted the whole series to remain together, Edith Halpert arranged for MoMA to acquire the even-numbered panels, and the Phillips Gallery got the odd-numbered ones. Uh, Are are both galleries in New York City? TBD. Go on. I was just thinking if they're close enough, you could just like go back and forth. (laughs) Run across the street. It would take a lot, but you could see them in order. I think they are, but maybe that's me being crazy. Weirder things have happened, but. Maybe it's in D.C. (laughs) That's a little bit It's in D.C. Oh, that's a little too far. Yeah. So. It's interesting that they wouldn't like take groups and that they'd split them up odd and even like that, especially with the storyline. Well, and that, but that's the thing is that like, because it's not, it's not exactly a story per se, um, but doing odd and even like that, it helps you to still kind of get the overall flow and the themes are gonna 
still be there. I mean, there's like a lot of times there's like pairs of hardships. Oh, yeah. I mean, like okay. the floods and the rain yeah. destroyed the crops and also the boll weevil. And right. those are right next to each other. So like one gallery would get one, one gallery would get the other. Hmm. And so it sort of preserves the flow of the narrative yeah, I see. even though they're being separated and so this double acquisition made lawrence an instant celebrity in the art world hmm. um he actually was the first african-american painter whose work was displayed in the collection of moma well. i don't know for sure if he was like the first to be featured ever at moma but his at least is was the first part of their collection do you know was any of his stuff on display when we were there you know i can't remember i can't that's either. It's a really shame. sad thing i think actually that this series was one of the ones that one of the floors that they were working on oh, and okay. didn't have open when we visited in may but i can't remember for sure that would have been uh that's sad because i would like both a, we may have seen it and not realized, but then also not had the opportunity also. Yeah, Because yeah. uh, now as I learn about it, it's like, man, I'd love to see this right? series. I mean, that just, you just have to go back. <laughs> yeah. Not oh, right no, now. We have to go back to New York Currently City. not traveling anywhere. Traveling oh, anywhere. Oh, shout out to coronavirus. No. Okay. No. So this exhibition gave him, as I said, national prominence. Um, and also in 1942, uh, the series went on a national tour. Lawrence along with it. Hmm. How do... I guess it would be the same as anything else. Yeah, it just has, you know, a couple weeks or a month. Yeah. In different galleries. I, I guess, That's fair. Different I, museums. I guess I saw the bodies exhibit. It would be similar to sure. that, but with... Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Any kind of like featured yeah. exhibition, you know, anything that's not part of the collection is going to be usually a traveling yeah. gallery. I don't know if we have any that travel through Greenville. Yeah, sure we do. It's been a while. We need to go back to the our local art Absolutely. establishment. I definitely yeah. encourage that. It's been that. too long. Yes. So um, Lawrence continued to find success um, painting scenes from life in the african-american community throughout his life he created art that focused not only on the plight of african-americans but americans in general he in the 40s um, i think it was towards the end of the 40s he actually because of all of this fame and success that he felt he he felt like he was just kind of lucky and just kind of happened into his success he actually ended up um, self-admitting to a mental institution just from the anxiety of dealing with all of this newfound popularity and fame and probably wealth i gotta imagine known before yeah and i gotta imagine at least some of it would be like feeling you are some kind of representative for a whole group as a minority who becomes famous you're one of a few right and so now you're you the pressure that would come with that would yeah. be yeah hard absolutely um and the kind of cool thing that happened is that of course 
being who he was, created a hospital series that showed like people in the institution um, and their struggles. Well, yeah, and this was back in the forties. So back, <laughs> I mean, not oh. that mental health is still super talked about now, but yeah, well, the forties that was probably, if I'm remembering my history right, it's probably at least because maybe close to the end, but probably right in that sort of boom of (laughs) institutions. Oh, yeah. The uh, not-so-great institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he he made all kinds of different series. Um, He he did one series that was called the Struggle Series. It was all about different Americans in their struggles. He initially was going to make it all about african-americans but um kind of broadened that Hmm. he uh went to nigeria uh on a trip he was invited to come uh, for 10 days and he loved it so much that he and his wife returned and lived and worked there for eight months so there's a whole series um on nigeria and those are kind of interesting they kind of contrast with the migration series a little bit um, at least the images that I've seen seem much busier. There's like, I mean, you see these and there's like a crowd of people, but those, um, there's like a hundred different figures that are all doing different things. And it's very like kind of wild and crazy and energetic feeling. Mm. He had a war series. He did a whole series on builders. It's a bunch of construction workers. Mm. Uh, and he did, a this really haunting Hiroshima series. It oh. looks like almost like um, I don't know, like a Grim Reaper, Angel of Death situation. They're very cool, very dark, obviously. Yeah. Um, it was a, but it was a dark topic, right? And he was active throughout his life, not only as a painter but also an art educator. Uh, He taught at Black Mountain College in North Carolina in 1946. He later worked at the Skohegan School of Painting and Sculpture in Maine. Um, And then he also worked for the New School for Social Research in New York. And in 1971, he became a professor of painting at the University of Washington in Seattle. In his early work... Uh, we saw kind of his style played out. Um, like we've talked about, it's it remained largely the same throughout his life using tempera paints, those kind of flat figures, but very expressive, even in their simplicity. Um, his paintings show a lot of compassion and intensity. Um, in his in the middle period of his life uh he kind of tried some experimentation like i said he did some patterning um you see some of his works almost get a little bit cubist like Hmm. um almost like fragmented like the cubists used to do um but he was still drawing and painting and prepping for another series when he died in Seattle in the year 2000. Oh, that wasn't, well, it was 20 years ago, but it seems like. It feels like it's not that long ago, but it was 20 years. Yeah, we're getting old. It's fine. Yeah. Um, But Lawrence's art epitomizes the black experience. 
Um, and that was something that he was always striving to do. As a teen in Harlem, choosing to be an artist, um, he was selecting a vocation that was usually reserved for white people. Yeah. So right then and there, um, he's kind of set himself up. Um, but he had made this major contribution to American art by showing the often neglected episodes in black life and the contemporary black experience. So I have, I just wanted to um, end at least this part with a quote by Jacob Lawrence. He said, a painting should not be a commentary, but the fact itself, not a reflection, but light itself, not an interpretation, but the thing to be interpreted. And I thought that was lovely. Yeah. Um, so along with talking about Jacob Lawrence. Um, and the fact that this was supposed to be Black History Month. Sure, of course. Um, you know, it, it does bring up the question in the conversation that on the whole, um, art history is the art history of caucasian usually males yeah i mean you can say that about history in general that's fair we're going to try on this podcast um though my art history education is sort of just as limited as a lot of museums are unfortunately um i had one actually i had a whole class that was non-western art history Sad to say, it was the worst of my art history classes. It was taught, even though it was taught by the same teacher who I adored and had for almost all my other art history classes, she taught it in a completely different way. Hmm. And we had a terrible textbook that did not allow me to absorb the information. I am not the kind of person who typically like studies for a test and then forgets everything I knew for the test as soon as it's over. But that is absolutely how it was for this class. So unfortunately, my knowledge of non-Western art is also limited. But I am going to make a concerted effort to try to include some minorities, some people of different cultures uh as we go along in this journey of our podcast yeah and i mean just like those out there listening we we too are learning i think for uh both of us jacob lawrence was uh someone we didn't really know about and i i enjoyed this opportunity getting to learn i hope sarah you enjoyed the opportunity of getting to learn as well absolutely i mean i always love it that's why we do this that's true even if nobody else listens except us, <laughs> which may be the case. Who knows? Which, let's just stop and take a moment to thank all of you who yeah. are listening. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. Yeah, of course we do. And uh, even if you're being forced by us to listen to it, we <laughs> still appreciate that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. We are going to try really hard to um, step step outside of our own knowledge and, and own history of being two white people <laughs> and you know obviously we are 
limited in our ability to speak on different things like that because of the fact that our history is white. Right. Uh, but hopefully we can at least bring some light to maybe some places you didn't know. Of course. Or some artists you didn't uh, know of. and Yeah. Maybe we can bring some, some of that into your life as well. Yeah. I will say probably our next couple are probably going to be some white dudes. But I... I want to get some uh, f- some artists that people have heard of. Um, hopefully, we've had some some uh, listeners suggestions, so we're gonna get to some of those. Uh, some some artists that folks are curious about. You know. Uh, Thank you to those who suggested. You absolutely. are you are welcome to suggest on our Twitter account mm-hmm. or Instagram, which is halfway docent. Yes. Or uh, you can email us at halfwaydocent at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. If you are unfamiliar with how to spell that, look at the name of the podcast that you're currently listening to. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. It's, I mean, it's the way I do things. <laughs> no. All right. Well. Well, I guess that's it for another week of Halfway Docent. Uh, thanks to our listeners. Thanks to My Girl, My Whiskey, Me, who let us uh graciously use their songs at the beginning and end of our podcast make sure you check them out Mm -hmm. uh they're fantastic there should be a link in our bio or you can just look them up Mm -hmm. anywhere you can find music i'm sad christmas is over because they had a great uh like four christmas uh song thing i found on soundcloud that was phenomenal but you can still listen you know christmas in february march whatever it is it's march now yeah it is uh But anyhow, I'm going to stop rambling. Uh, Check us out in two weeks from now. We'll be back on our schedule, we hope. Provided uh, that we don't get sick again. Yeah, and life life isn't full of nightmares anymore. Uh, But thanks again for listening. And uh, get out, see some local stuff. And uh, remember. It's just art. Yeah, yeah, yeah.